Now I've got a hello. This tall drink of water to my left, this is Austin. And Austin is insisting on speaking from behind a platform, this thing this morning, which, you know, you could use it to rig lights or something. I don't even know what that is, but that is huge because he is huge. Austin is a bunch of things I'm not. He's skinny, he's got hair, and... Um, and it looks like you have a new shirt on. It's got those new shirt folds. Now, Austin insisted, Austin insisted that this is not a new shirt. So I don't know how that works. It's not a new shirt, but it looks like a new shirt. So our guess secretly is that he's worn this multiple times and it's never been washed. And so maybe not. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Now, the reason I want you to get to know Austin is this. Um, Austin has just come on our staff as a teaching pastor and as a venue pastor. And what that means, we have a Sunday night service, uh, and uh, he is going to be hosting and teaching at that Sunday night service and any other services that we kind of add. I have a massive passion to raise up younger uh, speakers, preachers, pastors, because 2000, no, 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 wait, 1990. Um, four or five, I became a youth pastor after a couple of years as an investment banker. And, and I had no seminary training, I had a finance degree. And the senior pastor looked at me one day and said, hey, I'm out of town, would you cover? So I'm speaking to maybe 400 people, um, university professors, college students, so I get up and I, I preach. And my mailbox was flooded with, this is an original piece of paper from that sermon, feedback galore. Most of it was okay. Um, and, and one of the things that, that, that happened was that um, I, I did that, and they invited me to do it again, and they invited me to do it again. And then I, I have one from, I worked at Mariner's Church as a college pastor. This was a December 30th and 31st, 2000, my first message in front of more than 400 people at a time, and how nervous I was. And this was my first one at a church called Rock Harbor, September of 02. And here's... Here's what I've come to believe. Had not a senior pastor and a church decided it was worth investing in somebody who was a bit younger and still finding their voice, I wouldn't have the privilege of doing what I am doing. And so I committed that if ever God would give me a position like this, that I would be finding other people and allowing them to grow into their voice too. And so this is Austin from Austin. He is going to be teaching this morning out of the book of Luke, which, is there any other book? Nope. And Genesis will make an appearance. Exodus will make an appearance. Deuteronomy will make an appearance. Isaiah will make an appearance. And then Luke will make an appearance. So ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to Austin. Wow, what an intro. That was awesome. Thank you, Mike. appreciate it. It was either this shirt or a wrinkled one, so I decided to go with this shirt this morning. Um, well, hey, before we get started, I wanted to take a moment just to introduce uh, myself. My name's Austin. I did just move here from Austin. Keep Austin weird. Uh, but I originally hail from the great state of Oklahoma. Do we have any Okies in the house? We got one back here. She's brave enough to admit it. I know some of you are, that that girl's real excited about it. She loves her Oklahoma State. Um, And then I moved out here after being born and raised in Oklahoma, went to grad school, 
was living here in North Orange County, fell in love with the people of the area, the culture of the area, and then moved to Texas. Is anybody in the house from Texas? Okay, that's right. You know, this is the third service. In all three services, the people from Texas were quite a bit louder than the people from Oklahoma because they know everything in Texas is bigger and better. They're lone stars. Um, So I was in Texas living in Austin, a really unique city, and then got the opportunity to come out here um, and be a part of this faith community. And I tell you what, I'm very excited about it. It's, It's been a joy to get to know people and hear their stories and hear kind of about the stickiness of the church that when, when families come around, they stay around. And whether they've been here for generations or they're just visiting and deciding, I want to make this my home, it's exciting to be a part of a church where there's a legacy already built into it and a legacy continuing to be built into it. So for those of you who have been here for generations and have helped develop the culture of this place, uh, I say thank you. Thank you for sharing that legacy with your friends with your peers and with those who are younger than you are. And I'm excited to be here and have the opportunity to hopefully build in to that legacy and into that culture even more. And part of that legacy and culture being that we love to study, to read, and to hear from God's word. Um, So let's do that this morning as we open up to Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We've been reading through Luke. Luke has been telling the story of Jesus telling about his movements throughout the land, explaining the the confrontations that he has with religious leaders, the Pharisees. And this passage is going to be no different. So let's begin with verses 1 through 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So the author here already identifies that these actions taking place are happening on the Sabbath, and he reiterates it twice, which is an indicator to us that whatever this controversy is, it involves the Sabbath. So if we're going to read through this and fully understand what's happening and what Jesus is going to say in response to the Pharisees, we would do ourselves well to go back to the Old Testament and find out what did Sabbath mean for the nation of Israel? When Jewish people thought of the day of Sabbath and of rest, what did they actually think of? So we'll look at two places this morning. The first place is in Genesis. It's the first time that Sabbath is actually practiced. Uh, And the second time is a combined story of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And it tells us about why Sabbath was decreed for the nation of Israel. So let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 1, and we will read about the first time that Sabbath is practiced. This is Genesis 1. This is a a creation narrative. This talks about and chronicles God creating the heavens and the earth. And if we look more deeply into it, we can find a couple nuances that will really make the text come alive for us. So we start in Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's there's a few things that we want to take note of in this passage. The first one is the phrase, in the beginning. 
Now, in the beginning can mean a variety of things. One of the nuances of the word is that it may not necessarily refer to a specific point in time, uh, but more generally to a beginning period of time. More specifically, Old Testament writers, as they're writing about their kings coming in the monarchy and taking the throne, they use this phrase, in the beginning, to speak about the early years of a king's reign. So right off the bat, the author of Genesis is telling us that he believes God to be a king. So this verse continues. In the beginning, God created. What a word, created. If we're to unpack this word just a little bit, uh, there's several nuances, but there's a couple things that we want to take special note of. One of those things that is that any time this word is used in the Old Testament, it always uses God as the subject of it. There's several words for create, but when God creates, he gets this special, specific word, which really communicates to us that this is a divine kind of creating. It's not the kind of creating that humans and animals can do. It's not the kind of creating that the universe and the cosmos on its own can do. But it's specifically the kind of creating that God alone can do. Not only is it specifically a divine activity, but it could mean two things. It could mean creating something out of nothing. Or it could also mean assigning function or assigning purpose to something that is functionless and purposeless. So we have God doing a variety of activities. So if we're to continue reading, we see that in the beginning, this God who is a king created or assigned function and purpose to the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Some translations say formless and void. The idea behind these words is that this place is a wasteland. It's a desert. It has no function. It has no purpose. It has no real meaning for being in the cosmos. So we have an earth that's in this kind of ambiguous state. And then it says that darkness was over the surface of the deep. There's two symbols used in this phrase, darkness and deep. These were two symbols for the ancient Near East that symbolized chaos. And chaos was of primary concern for the people of the area. It concerned them because it threatened their cultures and their cities. But more importantly, it threatened their very lives. So as the author of Genesis is writing, we note that this chaos, this darkness, this deepness is actually in direct conflict and opposition to God. And so God, it says... He begins to hover over these dark, deep waters. So for us, the stage is set. We have a king who is about to embark on his divine, authoritative call to create. And we know from this passage that he's going to confront the forces of chaos head on because the two cannot coexist because chaos is in direct conflict with the very heart and the very nature of God. So during these next six days, we have God calling things forward. We have him separating waters from waters, waters from land. He's putting function and meaning and purpose into the cosmos, and he is systematically ridding the earth of chaos. 
So then in Genesis 7, we have a day that's unlike the previous six days of confrontation. So if you turn your Bibles over a page to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read, Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Another way of saying this would be that God has overcome the forces of chaos and he has infused the universe with meaning and purpose. Verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he alone is able to do. We have two words in here that are repetitious to one another, seventh day and the word rested. As the Old Testament unfolds, we'll notice that seventh day and rested become synonymous with one another, but they also become synonymous with Sabbath. So in this text, we have for the first time Sabbath being observed, and it's being observed by none other than God as king. Now, if we really want to understand Sabbath, we need to understand the word rest. What does it mean to rest? I typically think of rest as going to the beach and laying by the ocean because the beach is awesome when you're from Oklahoma. Um, But in this sense, it doesn't mean simply to relax. It means to cease. And to cease isn't just to pause for a moment, pause for a day. To cease is to bring a work to its final completion. It's that moment when you're in school and you've been working on that report and you've been doing the drafts and submitting them and getting them back, but eventually you turn it in for the final time, never to turn it in again. The work is completed. It's finished, never to be picked back up Again, so in this sense, God has completed his creating of the universe. Not only that, the word rest has the connotation that it means to take up a place of safety, of security, and of stability. Now, when it, when it carries this nuance, it usually refers to travelers and to sojourners and to soldiers who are coming back from being at war, it's the idea that they're going to come back and they're going to find rest by settling in, by finding a place of stability, by finding a place of security. So when God uses this phrase, it means that he's defeated the forces of chaos, but he's not going to leave. He's going to stay. And he's going to settle in to the universe as his home. He's going to settle into it because stability and equilibrium have been given to the cosmos, and he's now going to saturate his presence throughout. So if we were to summarize this, we know and we learn that God alone can bring rest and stability to the cosmos. So God confronts chaos, wins a decisive victory over this chaos, and then he celebrates his sovereign good kingship over the cosmos by settling in and resting. What a beautiful picture. This is the first time that Sabbath is practiced in the Old Testament. Now we want to learn about the first time that Sabbath is decreed as a commandment. So we'll turn to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. By the way, anybody watch that Stanley Cup recently? 
Got any Kings fans in the house? Come on. Listen, I grew up in Oklahoma. There's not a lot of hockey going on in Oklahoma. Um, But man, watching it on TV is addicting. It is fast-paced, and I'm officially bought in. Now I got to choose between the Kings and the Ducks. Any Ducks out here? Some girls quacking down here. I love that. It's awesome. So, Exodus chapter 2. This begins the story of Sabbath and why it was decreed. The world we have here in Exodus is vastly different from the world that we left. In Genesis 2, in Genesis 2, the world is stable. God has settled into the cosmos and all is good. But in Exodus 2, a new figure is introduced to the scene. And this, this figure, this character makes two claims on God's throne that only God can make for himself. This figure is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh claims two things. He claims to be the supreme ruler of the world. Only God is the supreme ruler of the world. And he claims sovereignty over the people of Israel. So for this, this is a direct conflict to who God is because God shares his throne with nobody. And the difference between Pharaoh and God is is that in Genesis 1, we have this good God that creates humanity to be his partners, to be his co-workers, to be his representatives in the earth. In this passage, we learn that Pharaoh has a much lower view of the people of Israel. And instead of honoring them and establishing them as a people, he enslaves them. And his kingship is so bad that Exodus goes through the the hassle of telling us about it. So this is Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. It says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. If we just pause there for a moment, we notice that the people of Israel are not used to slavery. It's not what they were created to be or the condition they were supposed to abide in. This is new for them and terrifying and horrible for them. So in verse 24, it says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about the people that he had created. But God's concern isn't going to just stay as concern or as worry, but God is going to promise to deliver these people from the Egyptians. So if you turn your Bibles over probably just one page to Exodus chapter 6, Verses 6 through 8, it might be two pages if you have a small Bible with small print. I got a big old Bible with big print. I'm a big guy. It says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, out from under the yoke of Pharaoh. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So in the same way that 
the conflict is set up in Genesis 1 between God and the forces of chaos. God himself sets the stage for a conflict between himself and Pharaoh. And so through a a series of signs and wonders, God engages in this conflict with Pharaoh and comes out victorious and delivers the people of Israel. We read about this deliverance in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. You'll flip over Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 1, 2, 3, 4, then Deuteronomy 4, verse 32. It says this, Ask now about the former days. These former days are actually going to be about the creation account that we looked at in Genesis 1. It's going to refer to the conflict between God and the forces of chaos. So ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Verse 35, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God and besides him there is no other. It is clear from this passage that God has defeated Pharaoh just as God defeated the forces of chaos. And in the same way that after God defeated the forces of chaos and found rest in the cosmos, God has defeated the forces of Pharaoh and he's going to promise rest to the people of Israel. We can look at that promise in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10, it's a short verse, but it says this. I love the sound of the turning of pages. This is good. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. It's interesting to note that the word for rest used here is the same word used for rest in Genesis chapter 1. So in the same way that God brought completion, restoration, and peace to the cosmos, and then settled into a safe and secure place. God is going to do the same thing for Israel. He's going to take them to a safe and to a secure place where they will find rest. In Genesis chapter 1, that rest is composed of the celebration of God's good and sovereign kingship over the world. In this case, when Israel finds rest, It will be their celebration of God's good and sovereign kingship over them and the land that they're in. So this brings us to the question, why a command to honor this rest? Why a command to once a week remember this kind of kingship? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, 
verses 12 to 15, and we'll read the command. It says this, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. So why command Israel to observe this Sabbath? They're on the way to the land. They're no longer in Egypt. Why ask them to remember to rest consistently on the seventh day throughout their week? Well, for Israel, the meaning is clear. Israel is the already, not yet people. They've already experienced God's deliverance from the hands of Pharaoh but they've not yet experienced the fullness of that deliverance into the promised land. They've already experienced salvation from the hands of the Egyptians, but they've not yet experienced the fullness of that salvation in the land. So as they wander through the wilderness, once a week they remember that God's goodness is behind them because they've been delivered, but God's goodness is also before them as they journey to the place where they will actually find their rest. It's a reminder of God's good and sovereign kingship over them, even in the midst of the wilderness. So as the story of Israel unfolds, we see a variety of kings taking the throne over Israel. Of these kings, David is the king that is known to give Israel the best rest. He's known to give Israel the best kind of Sabbath. It's at this point that they have safety, they have security, they have rest from all of their enemies. But after David, we find Israel going in and out of exile. We find Israel going in and out of the land. We find Israel going in and out of rest. So the rest for them was short-lived when they thought that it would be forever. So this commandment throughout the years takes on a new flavor, if you will. It takes on the flavor that they would practice it to remember that one day God would come back and he would be king again and Israel would find a permanent, enduring, long-lasting rest. Just like the kind of rest that King David had given them. And so the prophets speak about this future Sabbath. It's in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. By the way, sorry about the, uh, the Lakers. We got a finals going on. We got Spurs and, Spurs and Heat. Is that right? Anybody watching? Anybody paying attention? You guys don't care. All you want is Kobe. I get it. Is the best. Okay, Isaiah eleven ten. It says this. This is about the future rest that Israel is going to get. It says, "In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. 
and the nations will rally to him. And his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. When thinking about this future Sabbath, this prophet Isaiah mentions three things that are going to be important for us for our passage in Luke, which we're getting to next. He says that this, this rest that is going to come, it's going to come from the root of Jesse. Now what the root of Jesse means is that David was the king that gave Israel the best rest and his father was Jesse. And so David was considered the, the root of Jesse, coming from the line of Jesse. And so when this prophet speaks, what he's really speaking to is that the king that comes that will usher in the future rest is a king that will come in that same line. He'll come from the line of David. Not only is this king to give future rest going to come from David, but this call to rest is not just going to be to Israel, but it's going to be to all the nations of the world. All of the peoples of the earth are going to be invited into this future rest of security and stability. Not only that, this rest is going to be different from the previous rests that Israel has had, this one is going to be glorious. It's going to be unending and it will be established by a king that will reign forever. So in Genesis, we have God confronting chaos and finding rest. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, we have God confronting Pharaoh and giving the people rest. And here we have the future hope that God will be king again through the line of Jesse. And they will find an unending rest. Are you guys with me? Are we together? Confrontation with the powers and then rest. So with that in mind, let's turn to Luke chapter 6. This is 1 through 5. It's a confrontation with the Pharisees. says this, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? We should take a moment to know, to note what unlawful on the Sabbath really means to the Pharisees. For the Pharisees, an unlawful thing happening on the Sabbath wasn't that it was against the law of the written Torah. It's that it was against the law of the oral tradition, the tradition of the Pharisees and the rabbis. In fact, the rabbis were so, uh, so strict on this. They called it the 40 minus 1 regulations. These were the 39 regulations that stipulated what Israel could and could not do. One rabbi is quoted as saying, the rules of Sabbath are like mountains hanging by a hair because the scripture about it is scanty, but the oral tradition and the rules are many. And so we have Jesus confronted with that oral tradition from the Pharisees. And when Jesus responds, in order to justify himself, he could have appealed to the written Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He could have appealed to the prophets, and found justification. 
He could have even appealed to other rabbis of his time that were a little more lenient than these particular Pharisees. But instead, the line he draws to justify his actions and the actions of the disciples is that he draws a line between himself and King David. He's being confronted about the Sabbath, and he speaks about the king that gave Israel their best Sabbath, their best rest to date. So Jesus summarizes this story of David for us. This is verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then there's a pause in the text. There's a break, if you will. You can imagine the Pharisees thinking, why are you drawing this line between yourself and David? Do you think you're somebody like David? Do you think you have the authority that David had to supersede the Sabbath? Do you think you're someone in the root of Jesse, some, some kind of kingly figure? And before any of the Pharisees can speak up, Jesus answers them blatantly. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. At this point in the story, Son of Man is still a somewhat ambiguous term. But the word Lord is not especially when you refer to a king in the Old Testament. Jesus is claiming that he is a king like David and he has the same authority that David had to supersede the laws of the Sabbath. More than that, since Israel is in this great expectation, this great anticipation of waiting on a king that would bring them into rest, bring them into a future enduring Sabbath, Jesus is making a much bolder claim. He's claiming to be the king in Genesis that confronts the forces of chaos, finds rest, and whose kingship is celebrated. He's claiming to be the king that led Israel through the desert to the promised land so that they would find rest and whose kingship would be celebrated. He claims in this passage by drawing a line between himself and David that he is like the king coming from the root of Jesse in Isaiah eleven ten that he is going to bring a glorious rest to the people once and for all. Jesus claims to be this future king. And in the same way that God alone was able to bring peace and order to the cosmos, and in the same way that God alone was able to bring peace in order to the nation of Israel, it is Christ alone who is able to bring peace in order to the nations. Christ is the king who desires to make all things new and for all the nations of the earth to be gathered into his glorious rest. So what does this mean for us? If rest and if Sabbath are the, the celebration of kingship, what does this mean for us in the 21st century? I think we can relate a lot to the later writers in the New Testament, specifically the book of Hebrews that talks about what does it mean to enter this rest. And this is in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We have a writer speaking to a church, and he says this to the church, 
Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest, His peace, His wholeness, since that promise still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed, we enter that rest. So I'm reading this passage to myself and I want to adhere to the writer of Hebrews. I want to enter the promise of rest if it still stands. And he says, that it does still stand. So how do we enter into that process of God making us whole, of taking us to completion, of giving our lives peace? I think the writer of Hebrews nails it right on the head. It's through faith. It's through faith and prayer, faith and worship, the kind of faith that we exhibit as we follow Jesus. And so as I, as I look at my life, And I look on the story of my life, I can remember several times in my life when I have seen God's miraculous deliverance. And I can remember several times when I have seen God's miraculous salvation in my life. I've seen his strength pop up in remarkable ways, but I I think I'm a lot like the people of Israel. I'm kind of an already not yet person. I've, I've tasted portions of his deliverance, but I still wait and anticipate the fullness of that deliverance. I've tasted portions of his strength and his salvation, but I'm still waiting for that fullness to show up in my life. So as I observe Sabbath, as I celebrate God's kingship, I remember that I'm an already not yet kind of person. And the Sabbath reminds me of that. It reminds me that on some level, I'm still in the wilderness, although I can see God's goodness behind me. I know he's leading me to a place where his goodness will be even more fully manifest. So on a Sabbath, I can pause and remember Christ's kingship in my life, his kingship over my family, his kingship over my finances, his kingship over my community of friends and my vocation, I can remind myself that he's a good and sovereign king. And it doesn't have to be through the practice of taking 24 hours to kick my feet up by the ocean, although I do love that, especially Laguna Beach. It's awesome. But it can manifest itself in small ways. I can, I can drive up to work in the morning and I can pause and I can Sabbath in my car and I can recognize and remember Christ's kingship over the place where I work. And I can go home to Oklahoma and meet with my family, and before I walk in the door, I can remember Christ's good, sovereign kingship over my family. And so maybe you're in the same boat, and maybe you've tasted God's goodness, but you, you feel that already not yetness, and you're really anticipating and really hoping for God's goodness to show up in even more tangible ways. Well, I can say that's why that commandment is good for us as a community of faith. Because we get to pause throughout our day, throughout our week several times, and we get to Sabbath in our cars by remembering his kingship. And we get to Sabbath in the restaurant 
by remembering his kingship before we eat. And we get to Sabbath in our homes while we're making our beds and doing our laundries. We get to remember that Christ is a good and sovereign king and we can celebrate that as an already not yet people. So as we close, I'd love for you to stand. I want to read this scripture over you. This is Matthew 11, verse 28. This is the promise of rest. 11:28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What would it look like if we were those kinds of people that paused to recognize God's kingship over our lives? How would that change the way that we pray? How would it change the way that we interact with our families? How would it change the way that we approach our jobs if we saw God as a good, sovereign king over our lives? Let's draw near to Jesus and find the rest that he has for us. I'm going to pray over you. Christ, we ask you now that you would come into this place as we prepare ourselves to respond in worship, as we prepare ourselves to respond in faith, we ask you that your peace, your rest, your Sabbath would enter into our families. That your peace and your rest and your Sabbath would enter into our schools. It would find itself popping up in our workplaces that God, your kingship is good. Your sovereignty is good. Your grace is good. So in this moment as we worship, we ask you to remind us of all the goodness of your activity in our lives behind us and to remind us that your goodness awaits us in the future as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen.